You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the second book of Kings, chapter 23, the verses 19 to 30. It's a bit of an obscure scripture reading, but it does in some ways connect to our text this morning of Revelation 16, where mention is made of Armageddon. And the basis for that word Armageddon is to be found in the place called Megiddo in northern Israel. And you find that place mentioned here in 2 Kings chapter 23. We begin our scripture reading at verse 19 and we end at verse 30. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed and defiled all the shrines of the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had provoked the Lord to anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. We continue our series of sermons this morning on the book of Revelation, and we've come to chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, 
An ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, and they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightnings, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Well, of the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, some people claim that there are some really ugly chapters in the book of Revelation. And what do they mean? Well, there are some chapters in this last book of the Bible that really shock us and unsettle us. One thinks of, for example, of chapter 6 and the opening of the seals. One thinks of chapter 8 and 9 and the blaring of the trumpets. And what about that awful, bloodthirsty dragon in chapter 12 and those disgusting beasts that we dealt with in chapter 13? 
And as well, what about that burning sulfur business that we met last time in chapter 15? But yet, you know, of all of these chapters, the worst one, they say, may well be the one that we have before us this morning. Chapter 16, in some ways, takes the cake. Or miraculously, it earns the prize of being the most fearsome, dramatic, and intimidating of them all. So is this true? Is chapter 16 the fiercest chapter in the book of Revelation and perhaps in the entirety of Holy Writ? You decide. I would only say to you this morning, brace yourselves, do up your seatbelts, put on your spiritual hard hats, and hang on for dear life. I preach to you on the seven bowls of God's wrath. We're going to look at the character, concentration, and climax. Well, beloved, many of you are familiar with Psalm 73. It starts out as a psalm of complaint. And what is the psalmist complaining about? Well, he's complaining about the wicked. More specifically, he's complaining about the fact that in this world, the wicked, the corrupt, the violent, the arrogant prosper. They thrive. They're healthy. They're successful. They're the winners. And as for the believers, as for the Christians, they so often appear to be nothing more than a bunch of losers. They worship God. They confess his name. They support his causes. But nevertheless, look at them. They are so weak. They are so vulnerable, such easy targets. They work, work, and work and still fail to do well. They pray, pray, and pray and still get sick. They give, give, and give and still go hungry. Why, outwardly, you would think that God is on the side of the strong, the proud, the rich, and the powerful. And as for his own children, who are so often the opposite, he forgets about them. And the result is that questions tend to arise. Whose side is God on anyway? Where is his vaunted righteousness? Where is his precious care? Why does he neglect his own? Well, beloved, you can say that chapter 16 of the book of Revelation is one of those chapters that gives you the fuller picture in relation to this entire question. For just like Psalm 73 doesn't stop at verse 15, so the book of Revelation does not end with chapter 13 either and with everyone receiving the mark of the beast. No, both go on. Both go on to remind us that God does not forget his people and neither does he forget his justice. Judgment is coming. Yes, and we can see it coming. We see it coming, first of all, in the opening of all of those seals back in chapter 6. We we hear it coming in the sound of those trumpets in chapter 8 and 9. We see it coming here as well in chapter 16, really coming with those bowls being poured out. 
And any of these seals, trumpets, and bowls are meant to be reminders to us that God does not turn a blind eye to sin and suffering and injustice and persecution. His judgment has not been shoved aside or forgotten. Perhaps you remember last time I spoke about a pressure cooker. Well, in some ways, the world is in God's pressure cooker. And what is he doing? He is turning up the heat or the pressure little by little, degree by degree. Seals are open, pressure builds, trumpets sound, pressure builds even more. Bowls are poured out, and everything comes to a boil. Yes, and in the process, beloved, all of this, the way that God works, tells us something about our God. In the first place, it tells us that our God is is really actually slow to anger. Do you remember Psalm 103? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And of course, you realize, and I realize, that some people misinterpret this slowness. They, they think that God's slowness means that God's forgotten about us. God's changed his mind. God doesn't really mean what he says. But yet that's not true at all. God's slowness has another reason to it, and you can find it in 2 Peter chapter 3. First, Peter reminds us that God doesn't tell time as we do. For him, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. And second, Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, slowness doesn't mean slackness. No, slowness means patience. It means that God gives time to change one's mind, to repent and to regret one's evil deeds, and to turn to him and find mercy. So all of these gradual step-by-step judgments in this last book of the Bible should remind us God is patient He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to prosper. But then, beloved, if the slow movement of God's judgment points to his patience, there's also something here as well, something else. And what is it? Well, it is that our God never lies, never goes back on his word, never tosses aside his promises. Balaam. Balaam, of all people, says it so well. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Beloved, sooner or later, 
It seems that all of us have these dark moments in our lives when we wonder about our God and about his care. It may happen to us in the midst of sickness. It may take place when marriage fails. It may occur when the money runs out. It may arise when there's trouble and sorrow and not a friend in sight. Life's dark moments cause us to doubt and to question. And sometimes even to lash out and blame God. Only remember, he does not lie. His love is not mere hype. His promises are not hot air. No, he remains true to himself. And he remains true to you as people. Yes, and he also remains true to his judgments. If you look at chapter 16, what do you see? Well, really what you should be seeing is a kind of concentration and intensification of judgment. Of course, I realize at first glance it doesn't look as if there's anything new here. All of these judgments mentioned are in some ways reminiscent of what God did in Egypt in the days of Moses. Notice land and sea, sun and moon, waters, sky, rivers, mankind, they are all affected and afflicted. You know, the same things that are mentioned in chapters 6 and 8 and 9 are mentioned here in chapter 16 as well. But then you also need to stop and look again. And you need to note some things. The first thing that you need to note is that now his judgments here are continuous. They do not stop. Formerly they did. You remember the seals are opened and, and they stop for a while after the sixth seal has been opened and the trumpets sound, but then everything stops for a period of time after the sixth trumpet. But notice here with the bowls of wrath. There are no stoppages, no intermissions, no interruptions. The one follows the other until we hit seven. There are no breaks in between. The second thing to note here in chapter 16 is that now the limits are off. You know, you read the seals are opened and... Their judgments afflict one-fourth of the earth. The trumpets sound and their judgments affect a third. A third of the earth, the sea, the rivers, the waters, the moon, the stars, and the night. But here in chapter 16, no mention is made of limits. There are no one-fourths or one-thirds here. No, everything is included. Judgment comes to all and everything. Fraction time, in other words, is over. The third thing to note is that the objects of God's judgment here are unrepentant. 
In verse 8 and 9, it says the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. In verse 10 and 11, we read men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. You may recall earlier they hadn't been as hard hearted. In chapter 11, verse 13, we read the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. But now the people of the earth curse. They refuse to repent. They dig in their heels. There's no way that they're going to acknowledge the God of heaven and bow before him. The fourth thing to note here in chapter 16 is that the time of this final judgment is un. Predictable. Verse 15 quotes our Lord as saying, Behold, I come like a thief. Thieves are not exactly in the habit of calling you up the day before and saying, Tomorrow at 11.30 p.m. I'm going to break into your house or steal your car. Now, thieves come when you don't expect them. They come unannounced, unexpected. The coming surprises. And of course, as such, this, this is nothing new. Our Lord has mentioned this before. The Apostle Paul mentions it as well. But, but nevertheless, it would appear a lot of people are not getting the message. They assume that if you dig deep enough in Scripture as well as elsewhere, you'll be able to come up with some sort of timetable for the future. They put this sign with that one, and presto, they have what they think is the key to unlock all the mysteries. But what foolishness. What a silly business. For the fact of the matter is that no timetable has been published. Of course, there is one. But only God the Father knows it, and he is not printing it out or sending it to you by email. Why, not even his one and only begotten Son has it or knows it. Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. But only the Father. So if someone comes along and claims that he or she has the inside track on the future, do not believe them. Do not be so gullible. Do not believe the prophetic crystal ball gazers. Do not be so conceited as to think that they or you know even more than the Lord Jesus himself. 
No, your task and my task is different. Revelation 16, 15 goes on to say, Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked or be shamefully exposed. So what's your task? Two things. Stay awake and keep your clothes on. In other words, always be watchful and always be ready. Do not get caught napping. The fifth thing to note here in chapter 16 is that this final judgment is unrestrained. You know, when one looks at the judgments unleashed by the seals and the trumpets, one, one gets the impression that God is still holding something back. But then in chapter 14, 9, and 10, we hear an angel issue this warning, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Take note of the expression full strength. Up until now, it is as if God's judgments have been at half or partial strength. But soon, it will be different. Soon, all of it will come down. And take note, too, that it will come down on those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. In chapter 16, we are told that these people are still around. They're still worshiping the beast. They're still carrying his mark. And now the unrestrained, undiluted wine of God's fury is coming. It's coming. And finally, the sixth thing to note here in chapter 16 is that when the judgment comes, as it will, it comes in the form of a personal Divine judgment. Chapter 16, one reads, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Two things stand out here. The first is the voice comes from the temple, meaning it is the voice of God. And the second thing is that it speaks of God's wrath. You know, this is not something neutral or demonic. No, this is something divine. These judgments come from God. They express his holy anger at sin. I realize, of course, that may catch some of you off guard. It may even cause a whole new series of questions to well up in your hearts and minds. Is, is God then not, not loving? Is God not, not merciful? Is God then not good? Is He not kind? And if you want answers, it's best to turn to the angel and the altar. Listen to what the angel says in verse 5. You are just in these judgments. 
You who are and who wear the Holy One. Because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And listen not just to the angel, but listen to the altar in verse 7. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see here, both the angel and the altar remind us that our God is just and true. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is the righteous one. And in considering him, we need to take stock of all of his qualities and not just pick and choose our way to the ones that we like and appreciate and understand. No, our God cares. He cares about many things. He cares about his love. He cares about his justice. He cares about his children. He cares about his servants and about their sufferings and persecution. And he cares too about sin. And he refuses to turn a blind eye to it. He will and he does deal with sin. And isn't that something that we see ever so clearly in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus Christ come into this world? Some would say he came to, to spread abroad the love of God. And that's true. Some would even say that he came to spread and to tell everybody about how nice God is. Well, that's probably debatable. But you know, the fundamental reason for his coming is not in doubt and is not subject to debate. It has to do with sin. You remember the angel way back in Luke 1? Said to Joseph, you have to call him Jesus. You have to call him Jesus because he's come to save his people from their sins. And how does he do that? By paying for their sins, by becoming the atoning sacrifice for their sins, by undergoing the judgment of God against their sins. Indeed, beloved, in Jesus Christ, we see how just and true our God is. And how just and true are his judgments. And so chapter 16 tells us about the final judgment. It also, by the way, tells us about the final battle. Notice the sixth angel pours his bowl of judgment and three evil spirits are unleashed. They then, it says, go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And where do they gather them? The answer is in verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har Megiddo. Now this, beloved, has become a source of endless, endless speculation. Any number of books 
cannot wait to describe for us this great battle that is going to take place in the northern part of Israel. And you know, some write about it in really interesting terms. The United States and its armies are going to come from the west. The troops of NATO are going to come from the northwest. The Russians are going to come from the north. The Chinese are going to come from the east. The African hordes are going to come from the south. And they're all going to duke it out in the plain of Megiddo. Right in front of the ruins of the city of Megiddo. Fascinating. The kind of stuff that Hollywood loves. But is it true? Well, it's true. There is a place in northern Israel called Megiddo. And it's a place that's associated with many ancient battles that have been fought there. One of them is described in our scripture reading of this morning with regard to King Josiah. But the question is, is this where the final battle will be fought? I would suggest to you this morning that this idea of a physical, actual, climatic battle with real armies, tanks, jets, and missiles is a stretch. And that most likely the reason that John refers to Armageddon is to remind his readers that in the end there's going to be this one great spiritual battle between the forces of God and Satan. That it will signal the ultimate confrontation between heaven and the wicked kingdoms of the earth. And as for the outcome, it's never in doubt. The seventh angel, notice, pours his bowl upon the earth. And what do you hear? It is done. And what follows is an earthquake unlike any other. And what follows as well is unparalleled devastation. Islands flee, mountains vanish, humongous hailstones crush down, the great city splits apart. And we're going to hear more about that great city in chapters 17 and 18. But beloved, the outcome is obvious. The final judgment will come. We pray your will be done, O Lord, and it will finally be done. One day, the last day of this troubled planet Earth, this place on which we now live and love, will come to an end. And that distresses us. It's sad that it has to come to this. And it's also and especially sad that the last sound to be heard from fallen man is one of cursing God and refusing 
to repent. But you know, this is not the last sound of the saints. For as Psalm 46 put to music tells that the saints, in spite of everything, will sing. The Lord Almighty, great and glorious, is on our side and goes before us. He is our fortress, firm and sure. With Jacob's God, we are secure. Indeed, the children of God, in spite of all of that's coming, are secure. All who love, serve, and worship the Lamb are secure. Forever secure. Gloriously. Expectantly secure. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.